Humanity is growing and connecting. Tomorrow's world needs more energy from more places. But to find our net zero future, we must overcome the natural constraints of many new energy sources. This is the Energy Transition Solutions Podcast, where we look at the energy challenges of modern life and the innovators finding solutions. Join us for a low-carbon, high-energy conversation with your host, Joe Battier. This views of the host are his own and should not be viewed as those of any business, corporation, or government entity. Hello, and welcome to the Energy Transition Solutions Podcast brought to you by AWS Energy. I'm your host, Joe Battier. This is the show where we bring you low-carbon, high-energy stories from the people solving the energy challenges of modern life. I'm here today with Kirk Coburn, CEO of Iliox. Now, Kirk, when we first spoke, you described yourself as a serial investor with your investments focused on development of innovation and disruption of existing practices in energy and the environment. In my industry, that being geothermal, there are new companies being formed almost daily, some of which are actively seeking funding. So what I'd like to do today is learn from your experience on what it looks like to build a successful disruptive technology. And I'd like to do this by walking through the story of your current company, Iliox, and then talk more generally for all of those up-and-coming entrepreneurs in the energy transition space. So I'd like to kick this off first by thanking you for being on the show. And if you would, please share with me and the audience your background and introduce us to Iliox. Well, Joe, thank you very much for inviting me to your show. It's uh, good to be here. So, yes, um, a little bit about me and a little bit about Eliox. Eliox is a, a startup that was really a consortium of six companies got together saying, hey, we have a problem. We all share this common problem in natural gas trading. Um, we're all competitors, but let's get together and solve sort of common issues that we have in our market that would help all of us. And so out of that came Eliox. Now, my background, I mean, ever since 20, 2000, prior to 2010, I was a serial entrepreneur that started companies in, in different industries and just really enjoyed the idea of creating value and creating companies. In 2010, I really sit, set my focus on the energy environment space. My family of origin has um, made their living in energy, and I've always found it to be a fascinating um, industry, very dynamic, very complex, very global. And so since 2010, I've really been investing into startups all around the world that have been trying to disrupt the energy and environment landscape. Um, as of recent, um, in September of last year, um, I was you know, nominated to become the CEO of Iliox and, and lead this venture that I'm running now. That is a, a great story. And I, I love the the idea of being a serial entrepreneur and going into really any industry and 
finding a way to create value. I think that's a that in itself as a as a large conceptual idea is a great focus for for really starting any company or producing any new product. And mm-hmm. that's kind of what what you've done with Iliox. The very specific problem and the the value add was was decreasing those inefficiencies in natural gas trading. I I don't really know much about natural gas trading, so can you walk me through what the current system of natural gas trading looks like? Sure. So I'll try to be as simple as possible. For those that know a lot about the space, this might be elementary, but um, you know sometimes it, it takes going back all the way to the beginning to see you know what what could be improved. In, in the case of natural gas trading is. Um, you know, natural gas, which powers a lot of our homes, it powers power plants that electrify m- many of the major cities around the U.S. When when two parties, either a party that either um, uh, you know gets the gas out of the ground, or there's or just two entities that are trading it, which these gas is traded really amongst pretty large companies. It's the Shells and the BPs and the Macquarie's of the world. And when they trade gas, and, and there's sort of two types of gas trading. One is financial trading, where I'm just trying to make money. And one is the physical trading, which is actually, I'm buying gas from you, Joe, and I need you to move that gas from point A to point B. And so we're really focusing on the physical delivery of commodities and building the trust layer. And so for natural gas today, when you and I trade um, gas. Well, first of all, there's a team that confirms that you and I actually made a trade. So someone that both of our companies will say, okay, great. I know Joe and Kirk just traded. Let's confirm that trade. Let's make sure that they have the right quantity. It's going to the right place, etc. After the trade is confirmed, there's another team that actually schedules that gas. And most gas today is being moved on the in North America is being moved on pipelines and there's multiple pipelines out there. And those pipelines have their own systems, whether that's which some of them call them electronic bulletin boards, which is a relatively antiquated technology. And some of them also use EDI electronic data interface technology. And someone has to actually physically schedule gas to be moved from point A to point B on the pipeline. And that process is relatively manual. Now, the thing about moving gas is that unlike a financial transaction where let's say you and I, you know, I bought a stock from you and it automatically digitally arrives. When you're moving gas, you're moving a volume of gas. And sometimes that gas doesn't always get from point A to point B in the same quantity that you wanted it to go. So there's another team that actually gets together and confirms that gas was moved from point A to point B. And many times gas wasn't moved in the exact quantity. So that's where this reconciliation process starts. And people have to actualize or confirm that, hey, okay, well, gas was moved from point A to B, but it wasn't in the same quantity. So we need to reconcile. Um, And that's when it comes down to settling. It's like, okay, finally, after all this process, someone needs to pay somebody. And if you take those steps and you combine them, it becomes a relatively complicated and 
tedious process with a lot of people working on it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I can see how that can be a very, very difficult process. And, <clears throat> and with all of the different, different people at each step, it seems like there are, there's a lot of room for error and a lot of room for mistakes to occur. Absolutely. That's right. Like what happens in, in the commodity, in an industry where you have one of the most volatile commodities in the world, gas and oil, um, in terms of pricing, um, you can imagine that when prices are high, you just want to hire as many people as you can because you're making a lot of money. When prices are low, you're trying to streamline. But at the end of the day, how most of the industry has sort of grown up is by just hiring more people. And while technology absolutely can solve many problems, technology many times takes much longer to develop and implement into an organization. So it's just much easier to hire somebody and train them to do something. So over time, over the last few decades, the industry has sort of grown up by just doing the manual processes and just with just more people. And so we're trying to automate and, and digitize that process. Yeah. And it, it, it's funny as you, as you were saying that the amount of growth that can occur also means the amount of errors that are capable of happening can occur and also grow with that. And it, it seems like the, the most natural progression would be something like automation and something like digital, digital calculations and, and digital monitoring of, of the amount of gas going from point A to point B and understanding how much gas is at any given location at a time. So more specifically, what, what is Iliox doing in this automation and really what are you doing to try and solve these problems? Right. So, so, you know, I, what we're doing is we're trying to automate those, that whole entire process. Now people have tried this before and as someone that's made a bunch of investments in this space and around the space, I can tell you that there's a lot of problems that could be solved with technology. The challenge is you need an, an energy. There's a couple of challenges. One is the technology adoption cycle is relatively slow. And because it's a business to enterprise type of, you know, you're selling to large companies and, and the large companies sort of look around going, well, who else is using this technology? Because I don't want to be the first and I want to wait until someone else is doing it. So it sort of validates that this technology is going to be here for a while and not going to go away because when technology fails, that creates even bigger problems. So, hmm. um, you know, I'm answering your question in a little bit of a roundabout way, but what we're doing is we're actually, we were created by six, you know, of significant marketers of natural gas in North America. And they got together saying, Hey, if we all do this, then we could probably create an industry solution that's open to everyone. Um, and we will go through sort of the pain of adopting a new way of doing things and training our teams and adopting a new tech. Now, what we're doing is we're, we're automating or trying to automate this sort of 
the, the confirmation, the post trade after a trade is made, sort of the what happens after a trade of physically delivering gas from point A to point B and then getting paid. While we're trying to do that in a digital way, which people have tried before, no one's actually tried to do the whole thing at one time. Um, we're also putting it on a distributed ledger. And so, and one of the challenges with an industry where everyone's a competitor, you know, there's in, in trading, there's only winners and losers. Rarely do, do people win at the same time. Um, that's why we said, hey, distributed ledger is a great use case because, you know, these customers don't necessarily trust one another and they want their data to be secure. And we, we believe in, you know, while distributed ledger technology or, you know, which most many people think of blockchain being one of the best use cases of distributed ledger tech is that it doesn't solve every problem, but this is a great use case for distributed ledger technology because of the sort of lack of trust and the fact that data is so important to keep secure. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a, it sounds like that is a, a perfect use case for distributed ledger technology. And that's, that's really cool. The, the way that you are applying this new technology and looking at solving this problem that others have tried before, but using, using new information, new technology, new ways of, of calculating those, those numbers and doing that reconciliation. One, one question with some of the the current problems with natural gas, things that that are coming to mind are the the natural gas price rises in Europe. Right now, we we have the Russian and Ukraine. Um, I'll leave it at that. Everything going on between Russia and Ukraine, whatever you want to call it. Uh, we also have the freeze that occurred in Texas in February at what stage or what opportunity is there using something like Iliox to, to combat those kind of, those kind of uh, disturbances that we currently see in the natural gas market? Is that, is that a completely different part of the market or, or is there a way that Iliox help solve some of those kind of problems? Well, I mean, if you read a, a history, which I, I, I kind of am a history nerd to some degrees, but we're never going to solve geopolitical issues. I mean, ever. You know, that's not what technology, technology cannot solve political problems. So so we're definitely not going to solve any, any of those issues. And, and if someone can come up with one of those solutions, please <laughs> let me know. I'd love to invest. Um, what, we're, what we do solve is we do make, I mean, a couple areas where I think technology can, can, can really create solutions for energy. One, the freeze is that there were so much manual systems that some went down, some things froze. Um, just knowing where all the gas is and what to do, I think technology could improve that. So absolutely. Um, there's some, you know, when you think about the fact that many um, sort of the smaller players that were trading gas had to go to Europe to raise cash because they were um, didn't their credit limits were were frozen from U.S. banks and and and, and 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 investors, and so 
I think there's a lot of um, opportunity where technology can improve the whole value chain and create more transparency and more security. Um, another area which the, the freeze didn't, did not expose this per se, but it's also on the cybersecurity piece. I, I do believe technology can improve um, potential disruptions due to cyber, but that's, you know, that's another potential benefit of what technology can do. So for us, I think ultimately is create a, a more transparent and a more liquid um, and a more secure market is what I believe is possible. Now, there's another big idea that, that I think is is something that's, that I'm personally passionate about is also as we think about the energy transition and we think about the value of tracking renewable fuels, like renewable natural gas, thinking about clean power, companies and, and society is saying, look, I want a cleaner, I want to live in a cleaner world. So you think about the Googles and the Microsofts that are saying, hey, we want to, mm-hmm. we want to run 24 um, seven, you know, energy, clean energy 100% of the time. Mm-hmm. Well, in order to do that, you have to actually track sort of all the power that they're consuming and ensure that it's either being offset indirectly through clean power or they're actually generating clean power themselves and it's offsetting all of their yeah. power constraints. That market is a, is a huge growing market about tracking carbon, um, tracking the credits, whatever is generated, tokenizing those credits and creating its own marketplace. And so I think from, from if the energy transition is really going to happen and happen in a way that sort of, you know, industry is asking for, you're going to need technology to be able to do that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that is, that's exactly what I was thinking of next is, is how do you, how do you do this same tracking in a, in a carbon sense? I, I am a little curious with, with that idea, tracking the carbon and tracking really what you're doing now, doing the natural gas trading and and that tracking, have you seen or is there a way to calculate by incorporating this automated technology? Is there a way to reduce even further the the carbon footprint or the greenhouse gas emissions associated with with natural gas transportation? I mean, the answer is yes. I think one of the key critical components that I'm not sure where we fit in the value chain, but I have ideas that, you know, maybe that's just another conversation is really around sort of the Internet of Things, if you will, which is if you're really wanting to track, because today, once a molecule gets put into the pipeline, whether that's renewable natural gas or just gas coming straight off of a well, once that molecule hits a pipeline, no one knows really where it goes. The same with power. Like an electron, you don't, no one tracks physical electron movements. Yep. And so it has to be done in a way that's kind of indirect, which I have, you know, renewable energy credits, if you will, are, and the fact that, you know, companies are buying them to offset their own emissions is a real indirect way to say that I'm carbon free. I've never really, I've never been super, comfortable with it because it doesn't make sense to me in my brain. It's like, wait a minute, I'm still consuming, you know, power from a lignite coal plant, but I'm just buying 
credits from somewhere else to offset that. So, um, Mm -hmm. but I think once we start tracking at the source, so where gas is being put in or it's being taken out, um, you know, at the, at the meters, um, you know, there's been a lot of talk about, you know, adding technology that you can actually count and track sort of the emissions coming out of that. And I think that's going to be a big place. And there's companies starting to do that today of thinking about how to track at the actual source. Yeah. Yeah. I think that is, I think you hit it spot on that we really need to be tracking at the source and then, and then on top of it, knowing kind of that, that cumulative effect as that molecule ultimately ends up to the final destination and the final use. And as you were talking and the mentioning net metering and thinking about the offsetting of carbon, it, it really just made me think a lot more about carbon sequestration and how that is almost that it's almost that, that, that physical image of we're pulling X number of carbon out of the ground and now we are going to put in that same number of carbon back into the ground. And really here is what we're talking about here is once you have that carbon out of the ground, keeping keeping track of it so that you know how many how many units of carbon you have to put back in. And it really is a it's a very important, very, very precise and and very very complex accounting that needs to be done there. Absolutely. Good point. So I want to, I want to shift gears a little bit here. It sounds like Iliox is, is doing very exciting things, applying new ideas to this, this very old system of natural gas trading. And, and when you break down the, core components of any new business. I think that that's what what we're all kind of trying to do is find new ways to do the existing work better. And I think that's kind of what is happening with the energy transition. We are we're looking at things like electricity, we're looking at things like heating and cooling, and what we're trying to do is we're trying to do those better. And now adding a second layer of complexity that is doing this in a low carbon fashion. And you've been able to do, do this, building these, these companies for quite some time now in both investing, mentoring startups, and building them from idea to a sustainable income generating business. So in your experience, what makes a successful startup? If it's easier, we could continue to walk through Iliox and kind of use that as a as a further example, or just really just whatever whatever comes to mind. Sure. I mean, I think so. Investing in energy for the last ten plus twelve years, there's a few things that have seemed to. To, to peak my interest is like, okay, what, what's working and what doesn't work? What's not working? Um, ultimately, um, because, uh, you know, when, when Silicon Valley in many ways 
um, created a really good model when when sort of you know software as a service became sort of a full blown business model and selling software. The, the challenge is um, unlike the metrics that Jim that really move the needle on a on a software as a service business or infrastructure as a service, however, whatever company you're doing is that when you're selling to the energy space, it's enterprise selling. So go back to your old enterprise sales days, is that the, the sales cycles are 6 to 12 months, if not longer. Um, they're going to evaluate your technology for a long time. And then once they made a decision to buy, they have to implement the technology, which requires a lot of time and effort. And implementation is no small feat in a large organization. So ultimately, I think a lot of companies didn't really think about that. These are enterprise sales. So you better be making a lot of money per seat or however you're charging because you have to pay for all the sales and onboarding costs it's going to take to to start making money. The second piece is, is the energy industry is pretty clear. They sort of look at each other and talk to one another and they're like, are you using this technology? If you're not, why? And if you're not using it, I'm not using it. So it's really an industry that has been plagued by, you know, if it's not broke, don't fix it. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, no one ever, you know, what companies have the biggest market share? Like companies like Microsoft, like they have a huge footprint in energy. And why would anyone use anything but Microsoft to solve some of the problems? Now, if you think about all the startups around the world that are using you know the all the different types of applications that 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 Microsoft has themselves. You know it's just a different cultural environment. But but energy, they're slow to adopt technology. And if you think about who are the decision makers in these big companies that buy technology, because the big term has been over the last what eight years about digital digital digitalization. So all these big energy companies have digital czars. And if you think about who those people were, a lot of these people are baby boomers. And I, and I don't want to be, I'm, I'm not a generationalist in terms of if that's even a word, but if you think about, you know, my first job out of college was at Dell in the nineties. And there were many people like myself and others that got, got promoted really quickly. We we're really young, but we had a lot of decision-making ability. If you look at energy, mm-hmm. Most of the people that have big decision-making ability are baby boomers. They're older than even I am. I'm a Gen Xer. And when they make technology decisions, they make safe decisions. So you're not seeing a lot of startups make huge dents in big companies because the people that are making the buying decisions are still thinking about, well, let's hire the safe big company that's offering the same solution as the startup. So it's very difficult. So I look for consortiums. I mean, I think the reason why Iliox is exciting to me is because there's six large companies saying, hey, we want to build something different. We're asking for someone to fix this. And, you know, um, you know, consortiums have worked in energy. You know, Intercontinental Exchange was a consortium. There's a couple companies in Europe called VACT and Comgo that are consortiums um, that, that, are, that are showing to be working. And consortiums can work when when you have like-minded customers around the table saying, hey, we're ready to make a change. 
Hmm. Yeah, that's a really interesting point talking about the really the the people with the buying power and and the the fact that it is kind of a once a solution or a technology is accepted then kind of everybody goes in and adopts it and being a a geologist i'm thinking about what are the tools that we use we either use petra or petrel or or geographics and that's kind of it there really is there's very little room for new new mapping software it's kind of one or it's one of those three or maybe maybe ArcGIS, but that's kind of it. And and so it's a it's interesting to hear about Iliox and and how you've basically kind of built in that opportunity of saying, we already have six people who want this solution and now we can go and develop it. I'm curious, do you think that it is any different for for a focus on low carbon energy or the energy transition or is it still is energy energy or is it different for hydrocarbons versus versus low carbon well i mean i think you've got you got some of the same players trying to attack both and i mean to me there's two ways to answer that question first is you have um you know, big energy, oil and gas companies, they know energy. So they're going to naturally be the ones that are going to be the leaders of the energy transition, you would think. Now, you know, you've got guys like Elon Musk and other a few others out there that are saying, hell no, you know, hell no, I'm going to, we're going to do it a different way. Mm-hmm. But the infrastructure for the clean energy transition is the same, is similar infrastructure. You got to know how to build big projects. So project finance is really important. You got to know how to move things from point A to point B. These are all things that oil and gas industry is really, really good at. Hmm. Yeah, but it is That's a, good, a really point. good point. You, you have made a good point. You know, I I thought a lot about you know why when energy industry adopts technology. I, I wrote a couple of blogs on this, but. You know, it it goes through phases, and so what you're saying is is the energy transition in a new phase. You know, the first phase was machine learning in the 1980s, um, and and that's really where logging while drilling became sort of the big idea, and that was a pretty big change. And and you yeah. know, companies like Aspen Tech and OSI Soft became companies at that time. That you know, that's the why now. What's the context of why things are going to be different? Then in, and then the early 80s, you had 3D seismic. And so, you know, that's when you saw companies like Compaq and Sun Microsystems, um, you know, pop up and, and where Landmark Graphics became sort of a, a startup that was able to transform an industry. But it's really like, what was the context? Well, 3D seismic sort of changed how everyone thought about it. So you really need to hit the industry when there's a big reason why now, now there's a couple reasons why now, um, you know, you've got the energy transition and you've got sort of web 3.0, which is sort of distributed, you know, the sort of distributed ledger world. Now will distributed ledger world really kind of create a new internet and change the industry. It might, I think there's some great use cases, but 
sort of that's the, you know, if, if I was great at timing, I'd, you know, probably be, you know, I would never be Elon Musk because I'm not that <laughs> gifted, but you know, it's like timing's everything. Mm-hmm. Yep. Yeah. I, I can see that. And being, I guess I've been doing geothermal for a little over 10 years now. And in that, I, I've also seen just the, the aspect of, of companies kind of doing the status quo and just trying to incrementally add on new power plants and just kind of chug along the little engine they could. Whereas right now there are major investments being going into geothermal. There are big wild ideas. There is the adoption of oil and gas technology into geothermal. And mm-hmm. it it is kind of that timing thing that 10 years ago, if you were to tell any any one of the the established drilling engineers or established geologists that we should be drilling horizontally into a geothermal reservoir, they would have they would have laughed at you. Whereas now there's there are multiple companies that that is their focus is horizontal drilling into a reservoir and stimulating that reservoir and now being able to produce significantly more power than than kind of hoping that you hit a fracture. Right. And, and it it really is the timing as as you point out. I looked at all those deals. I mean, I looked at a lot of the, a lot of the leading uh, geothermal companies. I looked at when I was at Shell Ventures. I mean, I it's a great space. It's a hard space to invest in. Yeah. So let's talk about that a little bit more, if you can, because I I kind of opened up this this conversation talking about my experience being in geothermal and and with all of these companies now now being being large and 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 getting investments. But one thing that I, I still notice from many of them is that the ultimate aspiration is to be a power producer, essentially becoming mm-hmm. their own operator. And that is a very difficult, a very long road. You need lots of upfront capital. You need to drill several wells before before you can even go to the bank to get to get power or to get money. And you need a power purchase agreement. So there's there's a lot of money spent before any revenues coming in. And and I think that this is this is different than a technology company who can come in and provide a software as a service or some type of scalable product. How do you I guess what kind of device or what kind of advice do you have? And how would your advice change for somebody with a startup? and a scalable product versus somebody who wants to be an owner operator of a, of say a, a power plant. Absolutely. So first of all, um, you know, I'm going to put my sort of hat on when I was at shell ventures and give you some of the similar advice or thoughts that I had for, for companies that were pitching us, you know, ultimately, um, the industry is plagued again with, you know, um, you know, the, the, the upstream oil and gas companies um, that take risk are really good at finding oil and, and developing oil and gas projects. 
And then the service companies are really good at servicing, but service companies can never be oil and gas companies and vice versa. But, you know, guys like Elon Musk, going back to him, has proven that you can vertically integrate and be successful, but you also need the expertise on the team. So the challenge with geothermal to me is that you need tech, tech, the technology has to work. And there's only so many places around the world where geothermal works at the, at the, at the, temperature necessary for it to make money and be competitive against other costs of energy. And so, and there are places, I mean, the world's filled with them. Now the challenge is you need to be able to not only have a technology that is relatively low risk because we're not looking for at Shell, you know, when I was at Shell, like Shell is not necessarily interested in the technology. They're interested in, can I generate power low in, a, in an area that has lower costs than the, the existing um, power production price and then get someone to buy it? And so that to me is what's valuable. It's like, so, you know, I've always looked for when I think of geothermal is who has the projects, who has the technology that actually can deliver the lowest cost of energy and what's the risk mm. of that technology. And then secondly, do they have the projects to actually sell the energy? And that's where the power purchase agreement comes in. It's tough. That's why geothermal is so tough because you need to pull all these pieces together. Um, um, and it's not easy. Yep. Yeah. And I guess I was, I was thinking as you were talking about, it was making me think of the, the idea of really of stranded resources in in some regards that these these geothermal resources in some regards could be could be stranded and at that point you don't really even have a market to sell it to and you see that in the oil and gas space as well that you can find these resources but ultimately the 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 market is not the market may be ready for them but it the pricing isn't there and that mm-hmm. ends up being a problem. There you go. You just, uh, you know, it. it's painful. <laughs> yep. Yes, that it is. But I think that there are some cool technologies coming up and I think that hopefully those will, those will open the market a little bit more. It does I make me so. think a there's a, a little bit of a, I guess, a question here on something we've we've I've seen on LinkedIn and I've seen people talk about is energy resiliency, especially during the freeze. This was something that came up, and and something that the geothermal has compared to something like like wind or solar is that geothermal is baseload and and wind and solar are intermittent. So just out of curiosity, when when you're looking at a an investment, how do you how do you incorporate aspects that are not necessarily the say levelized cost of electricity because their geothermal is obviously more expensive, but but the resiliency and the capacity factor of geothermal gives it that extra value add that makes it 
potentially more valuable than a a standard solar PV power plant. Yeah, and I think this gets a little bit ahead of, over my skis slightly, but but ultimately, there in those markets, the um, whoever is the grid operator, if sometimes they they will pay for base load, um, and that to me is. Um, you know, where you have to make that economics have to, the economics have to work, but the question is, will the, can, can you get, you know, the commitments from the grid operator for being a base load reserve or, you know, however they're, whatever the, in that in individual area, how they're pricing it and how they're, how they look at it. But to me, you need those contracts. Um, because you, you know, being speculative in power is a dangerous, dangerous business. Mm-hmm. Yep. Yeah, that definitely makes sense, and I think it it does bring it back around to the the idea of you don't want to be speculating on any of any of the power, whether it's electrons going onto the grid, getting from point A to point B, and the reason in natural gas we have. We have so many people lined up from point A to point B to be checking how much gas is going is it's because we don't want to speculate. We want to have those hard numbers. And that's that's what y'all are working on. With that idea, where where do you think Iliox will be in the next five to ten years? Well, I hope we're a unicorn and everyone, you know, I'm <laughs> hoping we're a unicorn and we're you know, we're the trust layer for physical commodities as well as for the environmental uh, products or credits that are associated with those commodities. That's what I hope we are, Um, you know, but we shall see. Yeah. Yeah. So one last question before final questions is, is Iliox on a, on a blockchain? Is that like Ethereum or something? This is we, me getting over my skis. <laughs> yeah, we, we are. We have selected a distributed ledger. It's not a blockchain, and it, and we can. It could be, but you know, blockchain is a type of distributed ledger. But we have chosen a distributed ledger um, technology. We haven't. Um, that's not public of what we've chosen, but we have chosen one. And we're starting to develop on top of that technology. We're super excited about it and think it's going to be a a good solution for our customers. All right. Very cool. So with that, I've got a few final questions. They're a little bit different, a little bit more, more fun. I'll start off with the first one. What's the most important book you've ever read? I mean, you know, I have to say the Bible. But if you want a business answer to that, I think the um, I think the most important book I ever read is probably I know it's funny, but it's probably Forty Eight Days to the Work You Love. It's a really short and easy read, but it's so good for people that are searching for purpose. It's such a good read. And you said Forty Eight Dates or Forty Eight Days. 48 Days to the Work You Love. It's okay. a really good read. Simple one, but it really, like, I've, there's so many books I love, but that one is so good for people. I just thought it was it's just so good. 
All right. I will have to add it to the list. So the next question, when will we be net zero as a society? I mean, what a hot question that is. I mean, I don't know how we're going to get there by 2050. I don't know. I mean, the question is if ever, I mean, but I'm going to say at least, let's just say 2065 for fun. I think that's a, a good fun answer. And, and I think more importantly, I, I've noticed there's, there's multiple different ways you can go. If, if there's a, a binary way to address this question, it's either people will answer it in a time frame that, that they hope to see net zero, or it's mm-hmm. in a time frame where they're basically saying that it's, they are not going to see net zero. And it is a, it's an interesting way to look at it. And that also, I think, puts into perspective how, how that individual considers net zero. Mm. But I think 2065 is a, I like that answer. It's a good number. So the last question is, do you have a question for me? Well, what is the most, to me, since you get to interview all these great people, what's the most interesting person you've met? Don't, I'm sure you're not going to name me. I don't want you to, but who's <laughs> someone you've been so just blown away by? And um, I want to know who that is. So who should I go listen to is, the, is, is my question. Yeah. Oh man, that is, that is a tough question because everybody is interesting in, in their own way. And, and I think the, the way that the, the way that everybody's interesting in their own way is what makes it special and what makes it, makes this fun is because really i would say every single guest i've had on is doing important work and doing really fun work so that's a good way to to basically say like they're all really exciting i think that the to give you a straight answer i just interviewed uh john belzaer from saluna computing that was really interesting, not only from his background and his story, but also the company Saluna Computing and and what they're trying to do is a is a very cool way to think about how to better use energy and how to ultimately get more renewable energy penetration into the grid. That's awesome. Yeah, I know. I the, they they. They're the ones building data centers. Small, super interesting idea. Yep. Small modular data centers that they're co-locating with renewables so that they can basically use the curtailed power instead of that power just being wasted. What a great idea. Great idea. Yep. Well, I really appreciate it, Joe. Thank you very much for your time. Yeah, Kirk, thank you for joining me on the show. Before we sign off, is there anything else you would like to say? No, I enjoyed it. I hope I get uh, invited back someday.
Yeah. Yeah. Once we, once, uh, in say five years when Iliox is, is being labeled unicorn, then we'll <laughs> have you back on and talk all about it. That's awesome. Thank you, Joe. Yep. Kirk, thank you very much. And thank you everyone for joining us on this episode of the Energy Transition Solutions Podcast. Please do me a favor, give me a five-star rating and leave a review. Doing these two simple actions will help these stories reach a wider audience. If you want to hear more great stories and keep up to date with the energy industry, connect with OGGN on LinkedIn or visit us at OGGN.com. It's a new year and a new time for a new work location. If you're in the Houston area, I encourage you to go try out the Canon. Mention OGGN and they will give you a free day pass. It is my Houston office whenever I'm in town. And it's also where we host our monthly OGGN industry mixers. And finally, if you have any questions, comments, corrections, or if you have a story you would like to share, send me an email or find me on LinkedIn. And until next time, remember to keep it low carbon and high energy. Join us again next week for another low carbon, high energy story on the Energy Transition Solutions Podcast, a production of the Oil & Gas Global Network. Learn more at OGGN.com.